0: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. When I think of my childhood home in Bethesda, Maryland, depending on what kind of mood I'm in, I think either of the mall or of the woods. Although there were some fun moments looking at the inappropriate novelty items at Spencer Gifts, like edible underwear... The mall, in my memory, is a symbol of suburban enemy and alienation, a place, as my guest today might put it, without context. The woods, on the other hand, were endless and full of surprises. We'd follow the twisting creek, overturn rocks to find crawfish, and eat sassafras leaves. Once we made Molotov cocktails out of my mom's nail polish and threw them into the creek with pure anarchic joy. In the woods, I was always utterly present, connected to every sound and attuned to the slightest movement. In the mall, I was mostly conscious of whether or not my jacket looked cool. My guest today is Jenny O'Dell. She's an artist and educator who grew up in Silicon Valley and teaches at Stanford, the heart of the attention economy that's colonizing more and more of the cultural woods. She's also an avid bird watcher, or bird noticer, as she might put it. Her wonderful new book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, is something like a primer for growing the woods inside them all. It's about carving out space for ourselves in a world that wants to put our time and our lives to other, more utilitarian uses. Welcome to Think Again, Jenny. Thanks for having me. So, it's not really about doing nothing, is it?
1: No, it's definitely not. It's almost like, (laughs) you you could almost call it like how to... Do every, not do everything, maybe see everything. Okay. Um, I think that the phrase doing nothing is really just meant to be heard in opposition to how we normally think of how one would productively spend time. So like this idea that you should have something to show for the time that you spent all of the activities that would fall under the umbrella of quote unquote doing nothing like bird watching um, or any other kind of observation, you're obviously very, I mean, I feel very active when I do things like that, but i right. um, not producing anything. And at the end of that time, if someone were to say like, well, what do you have to show for that time? I would have nothing.
0: In addition to noticing birds and teaching and writing books, you also make art. And as someone who has made some art myself, I, I sometimes find it hard to separate. When you have downtime and you have sort of freedom of your time, (laughs) which all of us have so little of nowadays, it seems, I find it hard sometimes to separate what is a kind of like healthy work ethic in terms of like, oh, I want to make something because I really ought to, you know, I, I should, making art is good and I want to, you know, versus what is that perpetual productivity engine of our culture?
1: Yeah, I think artists are in a kind of uniquely complicated situation because you know, and I, I I feel that I'm very privileged to even like have a job that I find meaningful, which is teaching, but also making art. It sort of means that anything could potentially be work, right, like if you, right. especially if you're a, a open-minded to what you might make next, like am, am I reading a book for pleasure or am I reading a book for work, like if I right. am an artist, right? right? And I honestly think that that's kind of a funny, almost like nice question to have, like, you know, again, specific to being an artist, whereas I think a lot of people, It's not as fun of a question. It's it's um, like working all the time isn't. You know, you might be working all the time at something that you don't want to be doing. I I also think that, um, especially now, with depending on how much you embrace social media as an artist, which I have a really fraught relationship with social media. Maybe that's obvious from the (laughs) book, but um, you know, like the question of um, whether you're making something. Well, you're always, you know, as an artist, you're always sort of making things for other people, but like, what is the real reason you're making something? Is it because you want to make it and you're genuinely curious? Or is it because you are feeling this pressure from the general public to... To, you know, that's sort of been waiting at the door, right, like what have you been, what have you been doing with your time? Right,
0: right, right, right.
1: Um, and I've, I've experienced a kind of mini version of this before at, you know, I've done a lot of artist residencies and some residencies, you know, will embed you in, let's say like a company or some kind of institution where work happens a certain way and there are, there are things to show for your time, right? There are deliverables and Mm. results, um, and art just doesn't work that
0: way. Artists residency is where you're sort of expected to deliver art at a certain pace.
1: Even if that's not expressly (laughs) specified, it's, it's an expectation that hovers in the background, and I have just felt almost like viscerally the tension between, or like the sort of pressure around me just needing to actually sit and think and appear extremely unproductive. Um mm. of course from my perspective that is the most productive part of making art it's the most important part. It just right. doesn't look like doesn't look like making art, It doesn't look like doing anything,
0: you know. I think that's what I'm getting at and I'll I'll sort of stop harping on this line soon but it you know it's like that the nagging voice in the back of the head that sometimes comes and is like okay it, because I think you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. I think the wandering and the waiting and and the sitting that's where where a lot of the discovery is happening. So I guess it becomes a matter of faith. Like, will I ever make anything again? Yeah, yeah. Like one wonders if, you know, if (laughs) if you were like not in the context of a school, not in the context (laughs) of society. Well, I mean, you've got to be in society (laughs) because you're a human. But um, but, you know, would some of our best artists make one piece a year, for example, or one
1: piece ever.
0: <laughs> ever, <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Yeah.
1: But I still think that that one piece ever would be preferable to what I think you know either happens or wants to happen a lot of the time, which is you have a person who had had that time, right, often because they weren't known, maybe, yeah, and then they did all that thinking and the reflecting, and they were kind of alone with their weird project and because of that, they make something really compelling right. that other people find compelling, right? And then immediately, you get like this sort of force closes in around them where they're like, the do me- that again.
0: The media scrum, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah. like, do, <laughs> do that
1: again. Do another version of that. Do another version of that. And like some artists will, will do that, I think. They'll, yeah. you know, and no disrespect, like if you can, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of making a living, right? But, you'll, but it's like there's a risk that you'll never get that original kind of like weird thing again.
0: Yeah, I had a long time ago, I had Neil Gaiman on this show and he was saying he was talking about how he like either by luck or accident or maybe some sort of intuitive design, like the fact that his first kind of breakout thing was the Sandman um, Hmm. comic series, which took place in lot with lots of different overlapping mythologies and story worlds. He's had a lot of creative freedom and has never kind of had to repeat himself, and mm. that that felt That's like a yeah. great privilege yeah. and luxury to him. I mean, to connect this to something, to connect your book and what we're talking about to something else that came up recently, I was talking with this philosopher, Martin Haglund, who wrote a book called This Life. And he, unlike, I think, what you're doing in your book, he's aiming for a very ambitious if not utopian at least a kind of restructuring of society and a kind of you know a moving away i would say from capitalism toward a more of a collectivism but his thing was that basically our most precious resource, our only resource in this life, is what he calls our socially available free time. And that capitalism basically makes all of our time, tries to monetize all of our time. And you talk about how this happens as well through social media and the things we do now with our quote unquote downtime and Mm -hmm. the gig economy. And that basically the only thing that human beings should be trying to do is reclaim that socially available free time so that we can, so that we can do what we want to do with
1: it. I love that. I mean, <laughs>
0: of course, <laughs>
1: unsurprisingly, but I'm always struck by how subversive it feels to do even a small or spend, maybe even spend is the wrong word, right? But like to do anything for any amount of time that has no results and has no real price whatever you can get away with, like even just small interstitial moments, even the, the idea of like, let's say like making art and it's not for sale. Right. Immediately that's like, it creates a space like outside of the, the question, like how much is it worth? It's like, it's not worth anything, it's not for sale. I mean, this is the question I was kind of dealing with in the book that's really difficult, which is like, well, what if you're an artist that's like really, really struggling? financially. Right, then you right. then it's like it's really hard to justify doing that. I mean, I'm worried about it. I just started the book on the clock where it's almost like a nickel and dimed for the Amazon age, right? So the right. author works at an Amazon fulfillment center, McDonald's and a call center. And so I'm still in the Amazon part. Okay. But the, it's, and she's really funny too. I mean, it's the ideal combination of like something super depressing, but it's also, you know, she's really funny. And it's almost like this contemporary, super dystopian outgrowth of like Taylorism in factories right, where right. it's just like, everything is like down to the second. Um, You know, the thing that they use to like scan the packages or whatever, like it is basically a GPS, you know, and it knows where you are all the time. And then even outside of the workday, it's like the math of like, okay, well, how far away do I live? Where am I going to get dinner? How much traffic is there? I'm exhausted. Right. And it's like and this author doesn't even have children. Right. I worry a lot about that. And I worry about. Um, isolation as well the two kind of movements that I talk about in the books the the movement for the 8-hour workday and then the the general strike were so heavily involved with labor organizing
0: and we're talking about can we anchor this in history like that this is the uh, 1886 right. right it was
1: the 8-hour the you know the the big push for the eight hour work day and then the 1934 general
0: strike. What was the song there was there's like a refrain.
1: Oh eight hours for work eight hours for rest and eight hours for what we will. Right. And in the graphic for that that they made the eight hours it's just it's like a three part little graphic and the eight hours for work is someone in a factory eight hours for rest is feet sticking out of a bed (laughs) and then eight hours for what we will is a couple in a boat reading a union newspaper which I think is very telling right like um, you there are things that you you can't in both cases like that and the and the general strike that I researched. It's so much about how little you can achieve by yourself. This is what annoys me about self help that is addressed to an individual self right. um, who is feeling burned out because burnout is not an individual problem. Burnout has to do with the structure of
0: jobs, right? Right.
1: It, in a lot of cases, so, and that's something that you need. Collective action to address
0: right, and those that version of self-help can often and easily become a tool for just perpetuating mm-hmm. the situation as it is,
1: like become a better cog, right? <laughs> so it's more comfortable for you, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah.
0: right. You grew up in Cupertino, right, mm-hmm. where Apple is, and uh, and interestingly, later today, I'm going to be talking to the daughter that Steve Jobs essentially repudiated and then brought oh, in, wow. and then yeah. repu- you know it was just very, had a very difficult relationship <laughs> yeah. with. And, um, and that, that relationship is a little bit, like becomes a little bit of a microcosm for some of what we're all going through with technology, which, you know, was interest, originally introduced uh, to me with my friendly little Macintosh computer back mm-hmm. in 1984, <laughs> smiling. Yeah. <you> know? um, <laughs> and where we are now, right? And so I agree with you, and I guess I want to hear... You know, more about your perspective, you know, what it is teaching art mm-hmm. as you do at mm-hmm. Stanford and trying to live and think the way that you're trying to live and think in this in basically the epicenter of of that world.
1: In a way, I think it is helpful to have grown up in Cupertino just because my parents both worked at what defined a tech company back then is very different, right? Like it's my mom worked at HP, which is just like a big it's not a startup.
0: I mean at that point it was not a startup, right? Um it was a company on the old model where maybe you could get your gold watch at retirement. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um and uh
1: so and you know obviously I was around computers a lot and I maybe just I, I suspect that growing up around some of that stuff demystified it for me. Right. You know what I mean? Like Silicon Valley is just a valley to me, <laughs> like um, that. I that I'm sort of familiar with, and it also meant that I maybe early on started to become annoyed with it, mm-hmm. like and had a lot of time to think about why. And because it was of,
0: like your annoying cousin that was right, right there. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just always everywhere you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so now you know, in my position as a teacher. I don't know. I love it because my students are not art majors. A lot of them are not humanities majors. Okay. And five years of over and over again attempting to make art feel relevant and I hate the word useful, but useful to them. Right. Um, has been you know huge for me. I mean, a lot of the book came out of that position. Sure. And it's it, it almost kind of connects back to that thing of like something that's not for sale, right? It's like I'm trying to carve out this space within this kind of bottom line mentality that a lot of them are absorbing, and, and cult of productivity and all of that, and try to invite them over, like, hey, over here, there's this <laughs> space that has none of those coordinates. Um, right. and, it, and you could do something that's totally, quote unquote, useless, and the worth of it is measured in a completely different way than in, than in the system that they're used to.
0: Your book does end up advocating for a a certain approach like a kind of a, a way of doing this which can look like many different things but essentially there's an interesting chapter that I think is called the impossibility of retreat that argues that like you can get away for a while but I mean fundamentally you seem to be saying stay within this world we live in that there's almost maybe an ethical responsibility ability to do that, sink into the, the local, which both means, I guess, creatively resisting those elements that are harmful to our lives. And then also being aware of the bioregion, I guess, bioregionalism, mm-hmm. being aware of what's around you that, that doesn't have anything to do with necessarily the human world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great way of putting
0: it. Okay. Um, All right, conversation yeah. over. Yeah. We can, we <laughs> um, can end now.
1: Yeah, bioregionalism in particular. It, yeah, it's just been really useful for me as an example for so many reasons. Like one, it's just. It's a point of access to like awareness of just the physical world as like a fact, you know, like uh, the fact that we're all subject to the weather, you know, the fact that we all live on a giant rock. And it's really it's really hard to I think, depending on where you are, like to talk about it without getting lumped into like just like hippie like woo woo like one with the trees stuff but like which I also I'm from California and the Bay Area and like I so there's a
0: certain allergy to that as or you're saying you resist that or
1: well I think that that for some people would it risks having them write it off Uh if that makes sense um and but I think it's actually just, it's very basic at the end of the day. It's I, just like.
0: I was going to add in, at, at risk of sort of turning you off with respect to the self oriented self help movement, that the ultimate bioregionalism, what I think of in some ways is also the attunement to your own body. Fundamentally, we start with the anchoring in our body, and then mm-hmm. the, that also is an anchoring in the wider physical.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think it's really telling that, uh, you know, one really obvious characteristic of the attention economy is that you forget your body, you know, like, right. uh, it, and if if it's effective.
0: Soylent, I'm thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, in my original talk
1: uh, that I gave, you know, it was called How to you Do Nothing know in 2017. I think the part... Of what is now Chapter One, where I say that we should actively resist um, technology technologies that disdain the body and the body of the land that we inhabit. That slide has a picture of Soylent and then a picture of Elon Musk talking about you know SpaceX. So yep, <laughs> I mean yep. they're very related, and I think like I tend to remember both at the same time. Like if I become aware of where I am, uh, that means that I become aware of where I am through my body sitting there you know in that space
0: that's right yeah Yeah, no and I've had um, one primatologist and one biologist on the show talking about the idea of uploading consciousness and the fact that maybe 90 percent of what we think of as a self would be gone without the without the nervous system without our physical interaction with ourselves and the world
1: Totally. I also, I yeah, I totally agree. And I, I the other thing I wonder about is, um, and maybe I'm more aware of this because I still live in the Bay Area, right? And I occasionally, you know, will go to Cupertino for some reason. Or I used to live in San Francisco. I now live in Oakland, but I go back to San Francisco all the time. So this means that I'm constantly finding memories in physical spaces. Right. Um, like uh, I recently went to this the Saratoga Library, which is where I spent a lot of my time in high school. And it was the first time I had been there since high school. Mm -hmm. This is like this past year. And I remembered about a third of it. Well, what is remembering in this case, right? Because I walked in and I I immediately remembered the rest of it. But I would not have been able to remember that without having gone there. And so it almost felt like my memories were residing in the library. Right. And if that's true, then that means that my memory is spread out everywhere and is clearly not contained, quote unquote, inside. My brain,
0: and in a different way. There's a very beautiful moment in your book where you talk about because you mentioned the mall as Mm -hmm. well. I guess what's it Valco? Is it called Valco? It's called
1: Valco Fashion Park. It is now entirely abandoned, I think.
0: Which made me think of that um, Talking Heads song, "Nothing But Flowers," where (sighs) he's writing about like what if all the flowers just overgrew the parking lots and so on. But like how you visiting it as an adult and with your noticing apparatus that you now have, like how that it was a different place for you than it was, you know, that when you were a kid, like it was as decontextualized as it is for everyone else.
1: Yeah, I'm almost glad that I grew up somewhere so seemingly boring so that the, <laughs> the sort of ratio of like interestingness to supposed not interestingness could be as high as it is Right. now, right, right.
0: you know? Kind of like an Agnes Martin model or something, you know, like, like yeah. just variation within, within minimal sameness.
1: And it's humbling, right? It's like uh, finding out that something you have spent, you know, a significant amount of your life around or looking at that you just a weren't seeing it B wouldn't have known what it was. Right. Um and and so as I mentioned in the book, I became interested in in watersheds as I was learning about bioregionalism within the last couple years and you know only eventually thought <laughs> to look back at this place that I grew up And like, of course, like every, you know, every area has a shape and a logic to it. Like there is water that has to go somewhere. All these things that you just Mm. sort of like, even things like the fact that Cupertino feels placeless and has no downtown. After I wrote the book, I actually did way more research about that creek and about Cupertino. There are, you know, specific decisions that were made by specific people Around urban planning that explain the reason that Cupertino feels the way it does. Like nothing, nothing happens for no reason, right? So
0: yeah, we're situated in these geological physical spaces that that we may or may not have any idea exist, but that are defining of the place.
1: Yeah, and that information is there. I was amazed when I uh, so when I wrote this talk last spring about that creek, not far from Valco, there is a part of the creek that goes underground for a couple blocks, then it actually comes out in the middle of the Apple campus. Super weird. Okay. And the part of the creek that I mentioned walking in is on the other side of this kind of tunnel. So I, I wanted to know, like why is it underground? Because for a long time, there was nothing in this lot. And I asked the Santa Clara Valley Water Department, and they sent me like a 200-page PDF wow. of all <laughs> of the engineering documents, um, letters that people wrote for and against routing it underground like the history of it. And it turned out that the creek, which now goes all the way to the bay, and it kind of gets at this question of like, what even is a creek? It originally turned into a floodplain in this area. And when farmers came in, they dug this ditch to just have the water go through and not really bother any of them. So we could
0: control it. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then, but that's just a ditch. And so over the years, it starts eroding. And it gets bigger and bigger. It's huge. I saw there's photos in this PDF, right? Like it's like 40 feet deep now or something. Wow. And like trees are falling in, and there's these like letters from residents. Sinkhole. Yeah. Yeah. There's like these letters from residents (laughs) who are like listing all of the horrible things that they've seen in this ditch. Like a dog tearing a living rabbit to shreds was one of them, (laughs) and like delinquent high school students um, from my high school, which I you know later would end up at. (laughs) <laughs> and um, and so there was this whole like the Sierra Club didn't want it to go underground because it's now a habitat. But then another guy writes and he's like, "This is just a ditch that was dug by my grandfather," and you know, it's that's that's all it is. And so it, it ended up going underground, obviously. But it's like wow.
0: So the ditch became also like a focus of moral indignation. It yeah. seems, <laughs> and also a
1: fight, like a almost like a fight over what natural means huh. in a way, right, right? Right, right. And I actually don't even know which side. I read the whole thing. And I was like, I don't, I
0: don't
1: even know which side I'm on. Um, and so, so obviously it went underground, and now you know the whole thing is largely paved after that, and ends up in the bay because again, like water has to go somewhere and you have to build infrastructure for that. Um, but it's like, is that a Creek anymore? (laughs) I don't know. But, but regardless, I I love, I mean, I love thinking about that Creek because it is an indication, you know, as I say in the book, like that we're not living in a simulation, like you can't engineer away water. Water is like any waterway or watershed is evidence of something that was already here. That is like part of the human condition (laughs) that fundamentally like shapes our experience. And, and you know, urban planning and all that stuff.
0: That sort of gets at my next emerging question here, which is what bioregionalism for you, what that kind of awareness to an attention to, awareness of and attention to, say, which birds are singing in the environment or, or, or that creek, um, has to do with this broader thing of resisting the attention economy and doing nothing in the sense mm-hmm. of doing things that are not explicitly productive in a utilitarian sense.
1: I think that a lot of the attention economy runs on, you know, not only disembodiment, which I mentioned earlier, but an amnesiac, anxiety-ridden present, and mm-hmm. also a sort of placelessness or a, a lack of interaction with place. And so for me, bioregionalism is a really wonderful way to get both temporal and spatial context back. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the ways that I often think about it is, how do you know that you're here or not there? Right. Like if you're somewhere. Right. And it occurs to me that maybe a couple years ago before I started, you know, really start researching this stuff and really learning about my bioregion and about which birds are here at what time and, and all that stuff. If you dropped me on a certain trail, let's say in the hills, in the East Bay Hills a couple years ago, I would not be able to tell you what time of the year it was. As easily as I am now, I would right. be able to now, and I might not even be able to tell you like which part of the hills I'm in. And so now that I have kind of more more familiarity with the the signs of like space and time around me, it makes me feel like I'm more in that place. I don't really know how that else to describe sense. it. No, like, that makes yeah. sense.
0: I'm I'm thinking that like when things are decontextualized it leaves all of our time and space open to being colonized for any purpose like when we're destabilized from our own physical bodies from our own feelings from the physical environment that we're in we're vulnerable you know maybe sometimes deliberately so Mm -hmm. from the perspective of the (laughs) consumer machine Mm -hmm. To having our lives shaped in specific ways that benefit big faceless entities and yeah. not us. <laughs>
1: yeah, totally, um, <laughs> definitely, and and I think it's also, I mean, for me personally, it's been a lesson in the importance of context. You know, for knowing, you know, when, when, and where you are. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is how, if you really get into bird watching, you spend a lot of time thinking about birds you eventually have to pay attention to seasons you also have to have to pay attention to trees or like where where you'll find them right mm. is it a sidewalk bird is it a shrubby bird you know all of these then you have to pay attention to like bugs because they're eating bugs and you right. know which bugs and what time and very quickly you realize that it is really hard and i think this is a great description of the self too right it's like really hard to draw a hard line around an entity in any ecological system. Right. Um, like right. one of my favorite examples in the East Bay is like oak trees and the fungus that grows around their roots. And like the fungus and the tree are not the same organism, but if you actually look at where they interact, I mean, I was looking at diagrams of how the filament, this filaments kind of go Almost grow like between the cells right. of the plant cells. So, and if you take you know the if you take the fungus away, the tree is sort of stunted, um, and they they have a symbiotic relationship. So, in essence, they're almost like another level of organism, and I think the same goes for context where it's like becomes really hard to separate things from certain times and certain spaces. Mm. Um, like the migratory patterns of a bird species is so much part of that species and what they even look like during parts of the year. And so all of this, like the more you pay attention to it, the more you understand that content is so determined by context. And I think that's an incredibly useful skill to have right now because a lot of information that you get, let's say on, like, online, is stripped of context. Right. I mean, I'm struck by the parallels between, let's say, like a tweet that's taken out of context that is extremely viral, that people are sort of like... Uh, You get like a Twitter mob or something, like that seems almost similar to like a species of plant that gets taken out of context and becomes invasive somewhere else.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. many of
1: the invasive species, at least in the Bay Area, right, like um, a hagfish
0: or something. Yeah, there's nothing
1: inherently <laughs> yeah. aggressive about it, but once it's taken out of context,
0: you put it's, it in yeah. a place where, like, or, or jellyfish, when the climate warms up a little bit, you put it in a in a place or a context where there where there's fertile ground for it mm-hmm. to. To multiply
1: yeah so it's it's once you've separated the thing from its context it's it becomes either meaningless or it means something totally different so like any you know any lessons in context at this point I think are useful I wouldn't count in that also just historical research not just ecological but because of this endless present that we're in I think it's really easy to see the current moment as like unprecedented
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and i think that and i include myself in this i think there are a lot of people who started freaking out after 2016 and didn't think to look at who has been doing the work and activism since way before 2016.
0: right (laughs) right no that's right Me, me too i don't know i mean i think the reason that the time feels unprecedented is that there are Politically speaking, maybe not, but there are so many things kind of overlapping and snowballing from mm-hmm. from the expansion and the ubiquity of this kind of attention economy and social media matrix mm-hmm. that people find themselves in to the like accelerating Anthropocene mm-hmm. effects of, mm-hmm. on the environment. That's just where it all starts to snowball and it becomes... Hard not to get kind of like apocalyptic about things, right? Yeah, totally, totally. (laughs) And yeah,
1: something I've been thinking about a lot recently is how to deal with that feeling. And what's been really helpful for me, um, and this has to do with that kind of historical context, is rather than I think sometimes we're driven to social media by existential dread, right? (laughs) And then we only encounter more of it there, sure. And then that sends us back, and we come back, and you know, you get just get more and more, and you're spinning your wheels. Versus, as if
0: maybe if we yelled enough, like on there, we could somehow gain control yeah. over this. Situation. I mean, really,
1: like I ask myself that all the time. Like when I'm like on my way in, right? I'm like, what is it that you, what is it that you expect to find here? You know what I mean? Like I know exactly what I'm going to find here, and yet here I go anyway. Versus, you know, like s- like stepping away long enough to, and it's you know, it's taken me a while. It's almost like you have to adjust your eyes or something. Mm. And I'm lucky, right? I'm in the Bay Area. Um, there's a lot of people doing things there, right? But like sort of looking around and saying like, okay, who is working on something that's related to this? And like I said, has often been working on it for a long time. right? Um, and for me in particular, uh, you know, environmentalist groups, but also um, like labor activism groups, that have been around for a while, have been having the meetings and doing the work and getting things passed. and, you know, right? and I've you know, i've I've been trying to link up with those groups more, at least go to more of their events. And the feeling that I get when i when I leave is so different. It's not like the problem has not been solved. I still have the existential dread, but it's somehow offset by A feeling of, you know, obviously like connection to other people, seeing that other people care about something, but also like this feeling of like traction. Like Mm -hmm. this is a this is an expression of the problem that I can understand. As it's on a scale that I can understand and engage with.
0: As opposed to this debilitating sense, which again only benefits social media and the whole kind of big machine. Each of us is on our own in the midst of this dystopia.
1: Yeah, it's a terrible feeling, right? It's like (laughs) I think a lot of people just want to. I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but I think a lot of people want to feel helpful, and you're not going to feel helpful on social media. <laughs> like you, right. you might for a split second feel that you're you're doing something by, you know, like writing a screed about whatever, or you know, retweeting something, or or reading, you know, the hundredth article about how like we're all doomed or something. Right, but right. It's very different than being in a group where I think really, ideally, you are recognized as a whole person who has something to contribute. um, And that just the experience of doing that, whatever the cause is, is very therapeutic right now.
0: Yeah. And also where you're recognizing the work that other people are doing and have done rather than kind of going off as this sole crusader. I mean, there's a certain there's great anxiety but there's also a certain ego trip element right. of it, yeah. you know, being out there on my own, I'm the only one who understands what's going on sort of thing when that's not really Yeah, true. it's so strange. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's an incredibly isolating feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think this is as good a place as I need to go to the second surprise part of the show. For the audience, we will watch a clip if we have time, it'll be two um, from Big Think's video interview archives. You'll hear the audio could be on any subject. It was chosen by our video production team, and neither Jenny nor I has seen the clip
2: before
0: Okay, this is Edward Slingerland, a professor of Asian Studies and the author of a book called Trying Not to Try.
2: There's a very deep roots in Chinese culture of this idea of wu-wei, or effortless action, which just refers to the state you're in when you're not consciously monitoring what you're doing, so you're not aware of what you're doing. You're not feeling a feeling of effort or exertion. Just everything is going smoothly and easily, and you're absorbed in your activity. That is wu-wei. Um, And It was the center of early Chinese uh, religious thought in the Warring States period, 6th to 3rd century B.C. And there is an extent to which this has influenced uh, Chinese culture down to the present day. There's two important ways in which understanding this early Chinese material helps you understand modern Chinese business culture. Chinese still to this day tend to like to base things on personal relationships and trust. So they want to meet you. They don't want to Skype. They don't want to email. They want you to come and meet with them in person and get a sense of you. The Uwei strategy is about social ties arising through spontaneous trust, and the only way that can happen is when people spend time together in the same place and they can read the micro signs from each other and really get to feel like they know each other. There's also a sense in which personal relationships then become the way in which business is done. And I think from a Western perspective, we tend to see that as nepotism or corruption, and it often turns into nepotism and corruption, Um, but there actually is a a real insight there, which is that uh, institutions are great and rules are great, but things typically get done through personal relations. And we know that too. We just don't emphasize it in our culture. It's just more out in the open in China. Chinese business culture is still very much based on this interpersonal relationship. And this then leads into the the biggest barrier a lot of people face when they go to do business in China is uh, the massive amount of drinking you're going to be asked to do. So no deal gets done in China without these banquets where people are making toasts and you're doing shots of this Baijiu. Um, one strategy that i've used in china i would recommend is if you have a rice bowl nearby you can occasionally dump one in the rice bowl i used to dump every other shot in the rice bowl until i filled it up get your liver in shape now again this is sometimes viewed with puzzlement by western business people or western academics going to china Um, but the idea behind it is related to this personal connection the importance of personal connections and the importance of trust there's very good evidence that lying and cheating and ulterior motives all arise from our prefrontal cortex. So the way in which we, when we cheat, we're using conscious cognitive control. Lies require you to remember your lie, and it's harder to lie than tell the truth. One of the effects of alcohol is to downregulate that part of the brain, downregulate your prefrontal cortex. And so it's not an accident that most societies you have meetings where people are gonna have to agree on things, they're gonna have to trust one another, they're gonna have to move forward with a kind of feeling that they can trust the other side, some kind of intoxicants are involved. And it's because people do have the sense that if you do enough of these shots of alcohol with me, um, you're essentially taking your prefrontal cortex and putting it on the table and saying, I'm cognitively disarmed, I'm no longer able to dissemble because the part of my brain that does that is knocked out um, and again, we uh, this goes to excess. Sometimes uh, and it can lead to corruption and all sorts of other things. But the basic insight is an important one: is that if you want to build bonds of trust between people, and you want them to get to think about their future relationships in creative ways, alcohol is a very useful addition, and it's not completely random. There is it has ancient roots. I mean, we know that this is how uh, treaties were made and all sorts of deals were made. From the earliest written records we have from china Um, and it's still very much the case today
0: i'm trying to think as i'm watching that what would the optimal number of shots be for (laughs) this show to achieve because i always think that the the whole point the only point of doing this kind of show is about connection like connection to Mm -hmm. ideas connection to the person you're talking to um, so what would be the right number of shots for it to achieve that connection without devolving into incoherence?
1: <laughs> Probably two. Yeah, two shots. right? Yeah.
0: yeah, So maybe I can build in like maybe 15 more minutes in the beginning for the shots. Anyway, um, I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to wade necessarily into the territory of big, broad statements about Chinese culture, which I know almost nothing about. But But Wu Wei, I think, yeah. is an interesting concept that we might jump into.
1: I do have that story in the introduction, the Zhuangzi story about the useless tree, which is basically the story of a carpenter. It's sort of like trees from the point of view of a carpenter, (laughs) like a carpenter sees this really big, amazing tree and says, disdainfully like oh that tree could have only gotten that big because it's useless as you know timber or other you know uses for trees right and then the tree comes to him in a dream and it's like who are you to call me useless you are a mortal man about to die (laughs) um and it's kind of like this joke of how narrow one's idea of use could be right um because you know earlier on in the story it mentions that the tree is so big that it's actually shading a huge number of oxen, you know, like it's it's supporting life. It's useful in a, t- a much broader way. right. And as it says in the dream, uselessness has been very useful for me because it's escaped. Being cut down, and it's true. It really, it it really happened, as I mentioned in the book. <laughs> in Oakland, there is one remaining right. old growth redwood tree that was not cut down because it was oddly shaped, right. um, and, and it's in a weird and accessible. It's a weird place. spot, yeah, and you can still go and look at it. It is the useless tree. That's something I think of, and also just you know, I've been thinking a lot, even after writing the book, about the difference between. Goal oriented things and non goal oriented things, which sounds like Wu Wei is the non non goal oriented. Yeah. And the difference between. Walking somewhere and going for a walk. Mm-hmm. So, especially if you're late,
2: <laughs> you right, know, like right, right. I need to
1: find the fastest way to get to this place versus I'm going to end up at home. I'm actually going to maybe seek out the least quote unquote efficient route. Right. And I'm not trying to achieve anything but walk. The minute you're walking, you have achieved your goal.
0: <laughs> right. Like <laughs> right, if right, there right. was a goal. <laughs> I've been thinking about effort a lot lately and, you know, Wu Wei, it, it, in a sense, non-effort, like if you hear that in a Western context, you can think that it means laziness or, or something, right? I mean, we have these very strong value judgments attached to the idea of hard work is a positive mm-hmm. value. And I've been thinking that there is this concept of kind of right effort in Buddhism. And I think Mm. about Wu Wei, which is, I think, a Taoist concept in Mm. the same way that you're it's not that you don't do anything ever. It's that the things that you do are right effort in the sense that they are like in accordance with natural law, with things mm-hmm. that are hard to talk about. The Tao, the way, the flow, yeah. you know, the, yeah. you know, that like you, you can be sweating and working quite hard, but there's a difference between the sort of effort that is a fight against your own life, in a sense, and the sort of effort that is productive in like a true yeah. sense. Right? Yeah.
1: And now I'm thinking that like a really concrete example is from the end of my book, which is Do Nothing Farming, Right. the version of it from Japan where Masanobu Fukuoka figured out this form of rice farming that looks very counterintuitive from the point of view of traditional or industrial rice farming right because it doesn't flood the fields it doesn't use fertilizer it doesn't use it basically you grow clover instead
0: of using fertilizer it's um, not like a monoculture it's it's yeah. every everything kind of in a sense left wild but not totally wild right yeah
1: sort of stewarded but not Determined, maybe, and it just so happens that it is a very productive farm, and it also rehabilitates the soil, um, which is the opposite of an industrial farm. Right. And I love thinking about the difference between a do nothing farm and like a Monsanto farm, where (laughs) like you know what's sustainable, right? A Monsanto farm or like any industrial farm is like, it's just destroying the ground. Like it's just a matter of time, right? And it's like you're doing all these things that just are so against the grain. Of what can be done there or what should be done there. Whereas do nothing farming is incredibly humble and attentive to how an ecosystem or the pre existing ecosystem works. And then just it's a question of like, how do I insert myself into this cycle in a way that will. Produce rice, but I'm not going to be the sort of like Captain Ahab like figure of like railing against the elements
0: um, of nature uh, in order to reap my reward. Right? You know, it's understandable that we, as a species, kind of ran roughshod, have run roughshod over everything in so many ways. It's for much of our history. That sure, like mm-hmm. why not? Until you see the consequences until you actually have to deal with the consequences until it actually <laughs> yeah. means something, you know, yeah. and we're all like those chickens are very much coming home to roost. I think like it's getting a little harder and harder to ignore them without being completely delusional. So these things should no longer, these ways of doing things should no longer seem sort of like quaint and yeah. oh, that would be a nice hobby. You know, it's actually the only way that doing. makes sense. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 We want to survive.
1: Yeah. I mean that's what I love about One Straw Revolution, which is the book that Ukuoka wrote about do nothing farming. He has a great sense of humor because, right. and I think the humor is related to the useless tree humor, where he's sort of like, his tone is sort of gleeful and irreverent, where he's like, <laughs> I'm aware that what I'm doing appears to be unscientific and backward, and like I don't care, mm. like you know, like he's like I right. I don't see it that way at all. I only see myself as going forward.
0: Aside from or in addition to bird noticing and that sort of thing, like. What does it mean to resist the attention economy or what are some small ways in the context of this society? If we're going to do it here in New York City (laughs) at this time in history and with all the worries that you've mentioned, what does it mean?
1: To go back to the difference between goal oriented and non goal oriented, mm-hmm. I think the first part of it has to do with, on the individual level, to the extent that it's possible for you to kind of drop out of the goal oriented stream for, you know, not permanently, like none of us can do that, but, you know, whenever, wherever possible. I mean, I also talk about Bartleby, obviously, in the book and and the-
0: For the audience, that's Bartleby, the Scrivener, a short story by Melville, Herman Melville.
1: Yeah, where uh, it's it's told from the point of view of a Wall Street lawyer whose clerk, Bartleby, at some point in the story just starts refusing to do anything that he's asked, but he refuses by saying, I prefer not to, not, I won't, (laughs) you know, and not quitting either. Right. And I think there's something really fascinating. I mean, I think about it all the time, honestly that answer, it's like, it's made me realize that there's so many things that are formulated like this, like a question that you think has certain answers, right? Like if someone asks you a question, they're already foreclosing. A lot of possibilities for what you could say. Right. Someone is defining the terms already by asking the question. And if you're not attentive, you will accept those terms. Right. You see you
0: you 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 take the bait and then you're off and running on a causal chain.
1: Yeah. I mean like bullies do this, right? You know, like just asking a question in a way where either answer is not advantageous for you.
0: <laughs> I, I, I once saw I once heard there's a live album of Elliot Smith that I was once listening to where someone is heckling him and I, I don't oh, know yeah. what they're saying. And he's like, Yeah, I guess. Or something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know yeah, what I'm he right, says yeah. and then just like goes into his song. He's like, yeah. I suppose. You know, yeah. or something. Right,
1: right, right. It's like he's <laughs> like not. he is acknowledging the question, but he or like he but he's not engaging with it on the way they would like the yeah. way it was set up. Right? Yeah, he's yeah. like
0: water resistant to Yeah. It, oh know. my God, I love
1: that. That's so amazing. <laughs> Yeah, so we could all use a lesson in that, right? Because I think the faster and faster things go and the more questions you're asked and reactions that you're expected to have, it gets harder and harder to have that pause and ask yourself, do I even want to answer that question? Would I like to answer a different question? Right, you know what I mean? Like right. I would prefer not to. It's not just about not wanting to do the work. It's about not wanting to answer the question.
0: Even if we're in some sort of dystopian job, for example, where our productivity is constantly being measured and we're constantly having to report and, and we're getting critical feedback within the culture of that organization, it would mean being able to separate learning to separate yourself mm-hmm. from that so that you know like you're not having an existential crisis around the pathological needs of that organization that are being that are being represented as like your own pathology
1: and and defining the path for you mm-hmm. and all of your possible actions right? right so it's so i do you know like i do use the term dropping out and i think i mean it in a similar sense to how it was originally used but then it's important to me that the, that's kind of the first step, right? Like the disengagement is almost like the first half of the book. And then the second half is this re-engagement with things and people that are around you through bioregionalism or you know local history or whatever that might be right. and i imagine that as a kind of like lateral movement so like everyone has like the first movement is like downward like everyone has dropped out and then the second one is lateral as people are kind of starting to notice things around them and and i think really importantly it can be a really lovely experience to be learning about your bioregion alone but at some point i find it even more compelling to join up with other people in that space because when you and just one other person are right. recognizing something like, I mentioned that I, go, I went to that creek in Cupertino with a friend who had also realized that he had grown up next to it without realizing it. That creek became real to both mm. of us. It was something that we could both point to. Like We are both now inhabiting a reality where this creek is noticeable.
0: And if those connections and those networks happen inside of those more dystopian, determined structures, they can form a resistance that isn't necessarily directly, like Bartleby, isn't necessarily a direct confrontation, but that just kind of takes the energies that are there and redirects them in in, in different ways and carves out other spaces of possibility.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now you're making me realize that it's basically like the difference between. Let's say like 20 individual people quitting Instagram (laughs) and then tweeting about it versus those same 20 people going to a bar to just talk about something else. Right, 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 (laughs) right, right, right,
2: right, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think that brings us to the end of our time. Uh, Jenny O'Dell, thanks so much for being on Think Again today. This was nice. My pleasure. Um, And Jenny's book is How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. So that is it for another episode of Think Again. I would love to hear from you if you're a longtime listener or you're checking in for the first time. You can find me through my website, Jason Gotts, J A S O N G O T S dot uh, You can sign up for my mailing list and/or write me directly an email, and I, I think I always respond. I certainly always try to respond. Um, And I think I may have responded to every email I've received, at least at least the first one. I do my best. So we'll be back next week with something completely different. And I hope you can join me.